morning. Welcome. There is something extra special and unique about God's people gathered together, something unique about doing our practices together that we don't get when we're on our own, something about singing, about reciting the creeds, about taking communion, about hearing scripture together as a church body. As a church today, let us do what our hymns call us to, to repeat his mercies in your song, young and old to express your praise, to crown the King of Kings with glory, and as Psalm 98 says, to sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things, most gloriously by sending his son to live and die and be resurrected for us, for our salvation, for his glory. Let's let the choir call us to worship to that end this morning. Marvelous, 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 marvelous
such an amazing thing, to sing about the love of God is such an amazing thing. To believe in the power of the love of God is a harder thing to believe. There's a difference between us knowing the love of God up here and experiencing the love of God in here. There's a difference about... There's a difference between knowing that God is a God of love and, and there's a different thing of living in light of that love. See, the love of God is so beautiful, so perfect, so profound, so amazing that it is way too good to be true for some of us. This is part of the reason why we struggle with so many things. This is part of the reason why we struggle with our sin. This is part of the reason why we struggle with doubt. This is part of the reason why we struggle with worry and anxiety. This is part of the reason why we struggle trusting his sovereignty and providence. This is part of the reason why we struggle with him altogether. Because deep down inside, the good news of God being a God of love is way too good to be true. At least we perceive it that way. How about if I tell you that this is part of the reason why communion is, is mandated in the Scripture? Because we are creatures of habit. We need to practice, rehearse, preach, and preach again to our souls that God is a God of love. And what better to see the magnitude and the beauty and the perfection of God's love than when we think about the cross. When we think about the reality that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us. See, this is part of the reason why communion is so important. This is one of the ways how we internalize the beauty, the power, the perfection, and the magnitude of the love of God toward us. So this morning, we want to participate in communion because of that. And this is a celebration for those of us that are Christian already. If you're not a believer just yet, I'm going to ask you to please hold it. I, I want you to consider why is it that you're resisting the love of God and then surrender uh, to his love before participating. 
One of the things, though, that we like to do as a church now is before participating, we want to remember some of the things that we have already believed. And we do that by reciting a creed. So I'm going to ask you to participate to recite this creed together. Amen? The creed goes like this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Bible calls us to examine our hearts before participating. So if there's anything that you need to surrender to the Lord, if there's anything that you need to ask uh, forgiveness about, if there's forgiveness that you need to receive, if there's anything that you just profess that you're struggling in believing, this is the time when you come to the Lord and ask for his assistance and transformation. Let's do that for a second. If you have your cup, I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the scripture says that on the night when Jesus um, was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. I'm going to ask you to move the other side of the cup. And in the same night, when Jesus was about to pour out his love for us, the Bible says that he took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may participate. Our wonderful Savior, we are grateful that this morning, not only we get to sing about your love, not only we get to talk about your love, but we get to taste it and we get to see it. Lord, the magnitude of your love is so perfect, so amazing, that it's so hard to believe it. Too good to be true, some people would say. And yet it is. It is true. Your love is transforming. Your love is sufficient. Your love is perfect. Your love is all we need. And I pray, Lord, that just as these elements enter into our body... May the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ultimate um, evidence of your love, may enter into our souls and stay there until we fully believe it. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And churches?
this moment to encourage each other and uh, share the peace of Christ with each other and then be seated. familia. I'm going to invite the ushers to please come to the front as we continue in an attitude of worship. If what we have been talking about today is the love of God, I want to make the argument that part of the reason why as in the history of the church and in the Bible, we find the saints offering money, giving money, contributing to the kingdom of God with our finances is precisely because we have tasted the love of God. See, when you find something so beautiful and so amazing that truly fulfills your heart, everything else becomes secondary. And when you learn to see the heart of a a person, what is important to that person then becomes, becomes important to you. I want to make the argument that part of the reasons why we give to the Lord, why we give 10% or our offerings to the Lord, is because not only we have seen and experienced the love of God, but because we learn to love the things that he loves. And he loves his kingdom. And he loves his church. And he loves his mission. And one of the things that the Lord allows us to do with the finances we have is that we contribute to that, to the church, to his mission, and because we love his heart. So I want to thank all of you that continue, that continue to support the church financially. If you are new to the church, please do not feel obligated in participating in this. This is only for those of us that this is our local church. You may pass the plates. As we pass the plates, I want to remind you that there's always three different ways and how we can give this. You could always put your offering in the, in the place every Sunday when we pass them. You could always give your offering going to winbible.org slash give. Or for those of you that are worshiping with us online, you could always send your offerings to the uh, office, offerings to the office of the church or the offices of the church. Today um, is actually a, a special celebration, not only because we get to worship our Lord and spend time together and learn from his word, but it's a, a special celebration because as a church, you have heard us say time and time again that we believe in the beauty of diversity, meaning that we have embraced as a church the beauty of having people of different ages and different backgrounds and different ethnicities. So uh, when we look at our church, we, we see what kind of people the Lord has given us and what kind of people the Lord has brought into our church. And I don't know if you know this, but 10% of our congregation um, uh, has a background that is either Asian or Pacific Island, Islander descent. And this month, we get to celebrate that. 10% of our church belongs to that beautiful group. group. There you go. So we want to celebrate them. And we want to say to you, if you're a part of that 10%, that we love you, that you are a gift to us, that we are so grateful that we get to be a church together, because together we are reflecting the multi-ethnic, multi-color, multi-shape, multi-everything beauty of the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful gift. Amen? Let's pray.
Our beautiful Savior, we are grateful um, because of the things that you have been doing and continue to do in our church. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to sing to you and worship you for who you are. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to contribute to the kingdom with our finances, giving you a little bit of what you have given us. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to participate as Christians every Sunday uh, in this beautiful thing called the church. And we are grateful that you are placed in our hearts to be more and more a church that embraces the beauty of diversity, in which we celebrate our, our different backgrounds and ethnicities and ages. That we get to recognize, Lord, that your kingdom is so beautiful and so perfect that in Revelations 5 and 7 says that all kinds of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and languages and tribes and nations will come worshiping you together and we get to taste and see that here. I pray, Lord, that you continue to help us to be like that more and more. That we don't ignore our differences, but that we celebrate our differences and embrace our differences because in our, di in our differences, we reflect something of you. And now, Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you uh, help us understand why is it that Jesus said the things he said the last week before he went to the cross. I pray for the presence and the assistance and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The one that illuminates our minds, allows us to understand, affects our affections, and influences our will. May the meditations of our hearts and may the words of our mouths may be pleasing to you and we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the churches I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word good morning church my name is Chris Gabriel I serve our high school ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church and we're going to be reading God's word in Matthew chapter 21 verses 12 through 17. If you have your Matthew journals this morning, that's gonna be on page 118. May the reading of God's word affect our hearts and our minds. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
All right, as mentioned, it, as mentioned before, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and in our journey, we are stepping into the last week of Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, and, ri- and right before he resurrects. And if you were here last week, you probably remember that I mentioned that uh, the Gospels, all four Gospels, spent more time in the last week of Jesus than anything else. Therefore, the last week of Jesus is full of details that we got to pay attention to. The Gospel of Matthew alone spends one-third of the whole Gospel dedicated to the last week of Jesus. And if you were impressed by what we did last week, with so much information we got from a few verses, you got to see how much information we're going to get from this passage today, because we got very few verses. And today, though, what you're going to see is that all of the stuff that is happening here is pointing us and talking to us about the emotional life of Jesus, or what I could call the emotional attitudes of Jesus. And we're going to see three things in this text. We see Jesus, that Jesus experienced anger, that Jesus experienced what we're going to call compassion, and that Jesus experienced love. So we're going to talk about angry Jesus, compassionate Jesus, and loving Jesus. Let's go with point number one, angry Jesus. I know that even using that term is a little bit, um, creates a little bit of uneasiness in some people, right? And I think that part of the reason why that creates a little bit of uneasiness is because many of us, maybe not here, but many people that may hear this sermon later on, may, maybe we embrace this idea that God is a God of love and care and understanding. And when we think of Jesus, we only think in terms of love and caring and understanding. But if you have been part of the church for a while, you have probably heard me say already that that we don't have permission to create that dichotomy. That it is impossible for us to think of a Jesus that is loving, caring, and understanding And not think of a Jesus that experienced anger. That Jesus, as God-man, experienced anger. And that that not only is good for us to know, but it tells you something about his character. And the argument is super simple. If Jesus is so loving, and so caring, and so understanding... And if he sees acts of injustice or abuse, and if he sees things that destroy or hurt his people, the people he loves, and if he really cares about this creation and everything he has created, he must experience anger. Because it will be completely irrational to think of a loving, caring, and understanding God that sees everything that destroys his people and his creation and feel happiness. It's illogical to think that way. Actually, if Jesus was like that, he would be a monster. An indifferent monster that really does not care, nor love, nor understand what it means to be in this broken world. Therefore, you and I don't have permission to create this dichotomy. It is because God is a God of love that he's a God of anger. B.B. Weirfield, which is a a theologian um, from Princeton years ago, 1912, he wrote an essay, essay called The Emotional Life of Jesus. 
Actually, many of the things that I'm going to talk about today come from that essay, or at least from my understanding of what I, what I understood he says. And he says that all anger flows from some sort of moral judgment. It is the reaction of a soul that feels the pain before the presence of a perceived wrong. What he's saying is that human beings, uh, which happen to be moral beings, meaning that we all know what is right and wrong to a certain degree, when we see something that we perceive to be wrong, we are exercising a moral judgment. And if we see something that we perceive to be wrong, if we don't feel anger for that thing that is wrong, then there's something wrong with us. And what Warfield argues is that if God in Jesus Christ, God man, is morally perfect, completely sinless, and that can see it all and behind everything, it will be impossible for him to see what sin is and sin does and not become angry because he is holy. See, if that is true for us, sinful human beings, and we feel anger when we see injustices or something that is hurting our people, what makes you think that God even more will feel that anger. Listen, I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking about my daughters. And I hope you know that I love you all. But if any of you guys hurt my daughters, I'm going to love you with aggressive love. Doesn't that make sense? That's the same thing that God would do, but 20,000 million times better. Because he is holy, truly loving. It is with that that you have to come to this text. It is with that understanding that you have to interpret this text. Because if we don't have that clear, then the anger of Jesus seems something as something dysfunctional, out of place. So let's try to get into the text. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Just in case you forgot if you were here last week, this event is taking place the last week of Jesus, days before the Passover. Now, if you're not familiar, for those of you that might be new to the church with the celebration of the Passover, this was both a celebration and a, and a remembrance. It was a celebration uh, in which people remember, oh, this is a remembrance because people remember how the Lord has given his people freedom from the slavery of Egypt. But it was also a celebration of freedom because during the Passover, people would come, bring an animal, uh, sacrifice the animal for the forgiveness of their sins. So the Passover, in my opinion, was a celebration of past freedom, something that the Lord already did, and a celebration of present freedom because you are repenting of your sins and the Lord was forgiven their sins because of the sacrifice. Amen? Everything clear so far? All right. All scholars agree that this had to be a humongous celebration because people are coming from all over the place. Thousands and thousands of people will come to the Passover celebration. And if you were here last week, it's in the middle of this celebration that Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And it's in the middle of this big old celebration that Jesus now steps into the temple. Now, when we read the text, from a human perspective, Jesus is stepping into the temple, looks irritated. He looks like cranky Jesus. Right as he steps into the temple. And we say that because of what verse 12 says. Look at what it says. Jesus entered the temple courts 
and drove out. Now stop there for a second because the word there in the original is aggressively driving out. All who were buying and selling there, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, from, once again, from a human perspective, this seems to be showing us a Jesus that is cranky Jesus. But in order for you to understand what's happening there, I, I need to show you this image for you to see what's happening there. Right? So in this image behind me, this is kind of the, the blueprint of the temple. And if you notice, on one end of the temple, you have the, the place, the Holy of Holies. This is a place where the, the high priest will come only once a year. And if you follow, you go, you, if you move to the outer part of that, you're going to find out that there's the area where the priest could go. Only priests could go to that court. It was called the court of the priests, right? If you go outside of that area, then you find another court, which is the court where only the Israelite men could go. Now, actually, we don't have in this uh, blueprint the picture, but there's another area in which only women could go. But then the outside area is called the court of the Gentiles. You guys see that? The court of the Gentiles will be the place where people like you and me would be allowed to enter. Someone that had placed their faith in God, the Jewish God, were allowed to come here and perform sacrifices and do the things. All right, we can get rid of that image so you can see my beautiful face again. So look at here. When the text says that Jesus is entering the temple courts, he's entering the courts of the Gentiles, the outer part. The only place in the temple where you and I will be allowed to worship. The only place. You will not be allowed to worship in any other place except that place. Now, why do I explain all of this? Because it is here where we see the first reason why is it that Jesus gets so upset. See, he talks about the money changers being there. Now, there's nothing wrong with the money changers, actually. Because the money changers, just think of this. There's a bunch of people coming from all, all over town. Right, And they all have different currency, so they had to go to these places, the money changer tables, right, and exchange money so they could buy the things that they needed to buy to, to actually perform the sacrifices. So there's nothing wrong with the money changers. That was necessary for them to celebrate the Passover in the way they were supposed to. The text also talks about these benches where they're selling uh, these little doves. And this is the place where poor people that didn't afford, that couldn't afford to buy the big, the big lambs, they could buy these little doves for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, remember, this area, all this temple is a place of worship. So there's nothing wrong with the money changers and the benches. So what is the problem? And this is where you got to really pay attention. The problem was not that they were doing that. The problem was that they were doing that <clears throat> in the place of worship that belonged to the Gentiles. The problem is that they care more about money than the Gentiles worshiping God. The problem is that the Gentiles are coming here, imagine us being in a church, and in the middle of our worship experience, you see someone walking around selling hot dogs and, and Coke and beer, the way you see it in a, in a stadium. That, that's the idea, that's the image. People are wanting to encounter God because our God is a God of the nations. 
The Gentiles supposed to encounter God and these religious leaders are allowing all this money-making business right in the middle of the temple, or at least the Gentile area. Listen, Jesus is upset because worship to him matters. See, Jesus is upset because he wanted the Gentiles to worship him, or God in that sense. See, Jesus is upset because the heart of God is broken whenever worshiping is not a priority. See, the heart of God is broken when worship is not your priority. See, the heart of God is broken when my priority is not to worship him. See, the heart of God is broken whenever we put anything before worshiping him. See, this is part of the reason why these people are so, so, uh, uh, what they're doing is so offensive to Jesus. See, these people didn't understand, I think that sometimes here in modern Christianity, we don't understand either. Sometimes. That worshiping is not a religious thing, you know. Worshiping is a matter of life or death. Worshiping is not this religious practice we do. Worship is something that either destroy us or save us. Why would I say that? Because we either worship God or we're going to worship something else. Because we become what we worship. See, Jesus is zealous for his temple because it is in his temple where people worship. See, worship is something that God commands and God enjoys and it fits him. But worship is also people need. You need it. Worship matters. This is the first reason why Jesus is so upset. You would think that will be enough. But there's a second reason why Jesus is so upset. So he drives the people out. He overturns the table. And look at what he says in verse 13. He says, it is written... My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And there Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. And every single one of those expressions, the two expressions are so important for us to understand. See, when Jesus calls the temple the house, uh, calls the temple a house, he's saying that this is the place where people literally encounter God. His house. When he calls it a house of prayer, he's using the word prayer the way, uh, as a way to describe everything that would happen in the temple. So in the temple you pray, obviously you talk to God. In the temple you get teaching. In the temple you sacrifice, meaning you get forgiven. There's repentance and forgiveness of sins. And the temple was the praise, a place of praise and worship. That's what the word pray, prayer there means. So Jesus is not only reminding these people how important the temple was, and not only he's saying, hey, the temple is not a place for personal business. It's not even a social club or a place where you meet other people. See, the, the temple is the place where we encounter God. The place in which God speaks and we speak to him. The place of forgiveness and repentance. The place of singing and worshiping. The, 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 the place of adoration. 
So Jesus is upset either because these people have forgotten what the temple was for or did not care. See, not only he is, uh, he is angry because they are not allowing the Gentiles to properly worship the Lord, but he's also upset because they're not understanding the purpose of the temple. And this gets even more personal as he goes. Because there's a third reason why Jesus is so upset. And actually, he's about to get extremely confrontational. And one thing that you're going to see as we continue to walk through this journey is that the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more confrontational he, begin, he, uh, he becomes. So this is the third reason. You see that little phrase, then a robber is there? That comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, the word then can also be translated as refuge or protection. And obviously, the word robbers means someone that is stealing something. In the context of Jeremiah 7, though, the prophet is confronting the Israelites because of their false religion. So if you read Jeremiah chapter 7, it says that these people, that are supposed to be religious people that love God, they are oppressing the foreigner, they are oppressing the fatherless, the widow, they are shedding innocent, innocent blood, and they're following other gods. And they still think that they're worshiping God. So why would Jesus bring this here? And I want you to pay attention, church, because this applies to us as well. These people thought that because they were doing religious things, these people thought that because they were going to the temple, these people thought that because they're doing, they were doing everything externally right, they were okay with God. Actually, what Jesus is saying to them is something along these lines. You are stealing from the Gentiles the right to worship. You are misusing my temple. You put profit over worship, and you think that you can hide from God? You think that if you practice religious things, the Lord is going to ignore that you are not following his will. You think that because you are religious, you are okay with God? See, I'm using the word religious as a person that practices all the religious things. I'm using religion as a someone that thinks that because they do religious things, they're okay with God, or that God has to love them, or that God is for them. A group of people that think that because they do religious things, God owes them something, or they can earn something from God. That's what I mean by religious people. And that's the danger of religion. Because it is possible, church, it is possible for you to come to church. It is possible for you to read the Bible. It is possible for you to pray. It is possible for you to give. It is possible for you to serve. It is possible for you to know the Bible and use all of that as a way to hide yourself from not doing the will of God. Ain't that a crazy thing? They thought that they were protected because they were doing religious things. 
May the Lord have mercy on us if that's the attitude of our hearts. Actually, there's a transitional event in this text that comes from verses 18 to 22, which we didn't read today. We're going to read next week. But that transition event applies to what we're seeing today and what we're going to talk about next week, God willing. See, verse 17 says that after Jesus leaves the temple, he goes to Bethany, which is the place where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live. So all scholars think that he goes over there to spend the night with his friends. And the following morning, he comes back to the city. And he's hungry. And as he's walking down, he says this in verse, or we see this in verse 19. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Now, for first century people, they would all know that a fig tree would produce leaves before the fruit. But when there was leaves, another little fruit came up that it didn't taste good, scholar says. But it was enough for you to have a snack, basically. So as Jesus is walking down this road and he sees this fig tree that is full of leaves, he rightly assumes that if the tree has all these leaves, they must have fruit. So he gets to the tree and finds nothing, the text says. And he cursed the tree. <laughs> now, people will be like, what? Not only we got angered Jesus in the temple, but now we got angered Jesus with nature? Was he hangry? <laughs> that makes sense, right? But this is what Jesus is doing. He's using that as a metaphor. Part of the reason why this comes right before the event of the temple is because Jesus is using this as a metaphor. He wants people to see the connection between the temple and the fig tree. See, this is what he's saying. The tree has the appearance of fruitfulness. He has all these leaves. It looks beautiful, man. We go to church. We take a shower. We put cologne or perfume. We serve, we do all these things, we speak well, we got all these beautiful words when we, when we preach and when we pray. We look externally good. We go to the temple, we celebrate the Passover. We pray, we teach, we confess, we repent, we worship God. Leaves, 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 leaves. But Jesus sees past that. And he found nothing. Jesus is using that to confront the religious leaders with their religious practices. Jesus is about to show them that in the middle of all their religiosity, they don't really love God. And for sure, they don't love others. That's why they don't care about the Gentiles. If there's one thing that I've learned... In the last years of Western Christianity is that there's a lot of people that do a lot of religious things and they're fruitless. Now, I don't have the right to say that that is you, just as much you don't have the right to say that that is me. But the thing that you got to do and I have to do is at least ask the question, is that a description 
of who I am. Because that is precisely what breaks the heart of God. So there's a, a group called the Barna Group that you guys, many of you guys are familiar with, there, with them. They, they, uh, they produced this survey. They came out with a book called Unchristian. Comparing Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, with non-Christians. And it's so interesting to see the, the findings. Now, whenever we talk about service, we have to be really careful, especially here in the United States, because in the United States, historically, you are a Christian if you're not part of any other religion. So if you're not a Muslim, you got to be a Christian. Or the term that is used now, more popular, is evangelical, which I'm suddenly starting to struggle with that term. Because once again, it means anything, right? But this is their findings. I think it's worth at least paying attention to it. When we're doing this survey, I'm going to give you the positive things first, okay? Because I want you to feel good about the church of Jesus Christ. The positive thing is that Christians cuss less in public than non-Christians. And I'm like, oh, they cuss less. Yes. Two, Christians give more to the poor. That's good. Three, Christians are less likely to recycle. <laughs> That's not a positive thing, you know? And as a church, we believe in the restoration of all things, so recycling might be a good thing. Christians give more to religious nonprofits. That's a good thing. Christians buy fewer lottery tickets. <laughs> now, it's interesting that Christians do that because we don't believe in luck, per se. We believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, but, you know, whatever, it's a good thing. So I'm reading all of this, and I'm like, yes, we're making a difference in this world. <laughs> but what broke my heart, and I'm sure it breaks the heart of God, are the negative ones. Believers visit pornographic websites just as much as non-believers. Believers get drunk just as much as non-believers. Believers take illegal drugs or take prescriptions, medicines not prescribed to them, just as much as non-believers. Believers are willing to lie to get out of difficult situations just as much as non-believers. Believers have intentionally done something to get back to someone as a revenge within 30 days, just as much as non-believers. 84% of the participants in this survey Non-Christian participants in this survey say that they know at least one Christian and only, pay attention church, only 15% of those 85% says that that Christian has a different lifestyle to the ones they have. I think that that deserves a ain't that crazy And then we wonder why is it that Christianity is losing popularity in this side of the world. And then you wonder why is it that people confuse politics with the gospel. And then you wonder why Christians are not welcome. 
And then you wonder why the Christians are not making a difference. Now, I'm not talking about you specifically, but you got to ask the question, is that me? Because false religion is not only detrimental to the religious person, and not only affects everyone we love, but it's a false relationship with God. It's only leaves. So I got to ask the question. Is that you? Is that me? That's why paying attention to the emotional life of Jesus is important. Thanks God that that is not the only emotion we see in Jesus. Because Jesus is shown here like kind of a paradoxical figure. Because he's going to show us another emotion. His compassionate heart, point number two. So he drives out people. He overturns the, people, uh, the tables. He, he, uh, he, he's uh, kind of explaining what the temple is supposed to be. But look at what he does in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now the text doesn't say why he does that. But the rest of the gospel does. The gospel, oh, the gospel of Matthew and actually all the gospels will tell you that part of the reason why Jesus does this time and time again is because he is a compassionate Jesus. So in verse 15 actually, it says that it was the chief priest and the teachers of the law that are the ones that are allowing all of these things in the court of the Gentiles. But the verse 15 also tells us that this group had created something. They added something to the scripture. Or subtracted something from the scripture because that's what religious people do. And somehow, they came to the conclusion that it was right for them not to welcome the blind and the lame. When the entire Old Testament says that the place for the Gentiles will welcome everybody. So we don't understand how is it that these people added or subtracted from the scripture. What we do know is that they were not compassionate people. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the compassionate God. He is the, refl- the perfect imprint of God the Father, which Exodus 34 and Psalm 51 says that he's a God of compassion. Now, not only you need to understand the anger of Jesus, but the compassion of Jesus. Because the word compassion in the Bible is always is a way to describe that God looks at the needs of people and are moved by it. Seeing that Jesus has the tendency of seeing the deepest needs that people have. And he's moved by that. To the point that he has to do something. And Jesus enters into the temple. And he's teaching everybody that the temple was supposed to be a place of compassion. Because the temple is supposed to reflect a compassionate God. See, part of the reason why people will go to the temple is because God would draw them in as a God of compassion. Part of the reason why we would speak to God and people would speak to him is because God is a God of compassion. Part of the reason why people will sacrifice, make sacrifices and repent and receive forgiveness is because God is a God of compassion. Part of the reason why we worship and he receives our worship is because he's a God of compassion. Interesting enough, the word compassion is the first and the most prominent emotion Jesus shows. 
He is in the temple, not just to correct what is wrong, not just to get angry to the things that he needs to be, uh, uh, get angry about, but to show the compassion of God. So, if religious practices without a heart transformation kills us, don't you think that also lack of compassion kills us? So the question is this. How do we change? How do we do for us to learn to be angry about the things that we're supposed to be angry without sinning? How do we grow in our compassion? How do we fight our religious tendencies? How do we become and reflect the character of God? How do we become the people that God wants us to be? Well, this takes me to my third. I'm going to call it emotional attitude that Jesus displays. And it's the love in Jesus. See, it was because Jesus is loving that he got angry. Right? And he drove the people out and overturned the, paper, the, the tables and remind people of the, of the purpose of the temple. It is because God is loving, Jesus is loving that he did that. And it is because Jesus is loving that he is a God of compassion. So, all these religious leaders are seeing what Jesus is doing and they're getting super upset. Actually, in verse 15, if I'm not wrong, yeah, in verse 15, says that they were indignant and they got, they got super angry at Jesus because there were kids in the temple and they started Worshiping Jesus, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So they go to Jesus and say, hey, you got to stop him. Don't you see what's happening? And this is how Jesus responds, just to make him more upset, I think. Verse 16, Jesus replies, have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. See, these religious are upset because they're making a connection between what the kids are saying and Jesus. The kids are saying they're worshiping him like if he was the king that came from David. But when Jesus responds here, he's quoting Psalm 8, which is a psalm about the Messiah. So not only they're upset because the kids are saying that he's a king, but he's contributing to their anger because he's saying, yes, I am the king, and I'm also the Messiah. Can you imagine these people? What's the difference between them and us today? That they didn't understand what the Messiah was supposed to be like. And we do. And I believe that this is really what transforms us into the, into the people that we're supposed to be. And I believe that this is what helps us deal with our sinful anger and turn it into righteous anger. To be angry for the things that matter. And I believe this is the thing that we need to become compassionate people. When we truly understand what it means to have a king that is a Messiah and what the Messiah did. See, this is what they didn't understand, but we do. That being a Messiah, the Savior of the world, meant that he will have to go to the cross. And that in that cross, we will see the anger of God and the compassion of God at the same time. See, they didn't understand, but we do. 
that the anger of God was displayed because God cannot simply see what we have done wrong, what we have done to him and we have done to others, and simply ignore it. No, he cannot do that. See, he had already said that sin must be punished. And God sees our sin and does not walk away. Because if he walks away, he stops being holy. So what happens at the cross? The one thing that only Christianity offers, the one that needs to inflict punishment, takes the punishment upon himself. It is at the cross where we see the cosmic representation of the anger of God. And at the same time, at the cross we see the cosmic representation of the compassion of God. Because the, he did not pour his wrath upon us, but he, but he poured it against his son. No other religion in the world talks about that. See, the same God that demands punishment is the same God that takes punishment himself. It is the God-man instead, instead of the sinners. It is the godly instead of the godless. It is God instead of you and instead of us. Why would God do that in Jesus? Number one, so we could see that Jesus is the true and ultimate temple. See, he came to replace that temple. He is the meeting place with the Father. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the person that forgives our sins. He is the lamb that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the God-man that is worthy of all adoration. The only way you, your heart starts to change is when you move from the temple created by man to the temple Jesus Christ. And two, when you see the magnitude of his love. See, you cannot divorce compassion from love. Just as much you cannot divorce anger from love. The only thing that is going to change our hearts and make us into the people that we're supposed to be is when we see at the cross the anger and the compassion of God and the love as the driving force behind everything that happened there. Do you have that? May the Lord keep us from being religious people and become true worshipers. Because we don't need to hide. Jesus already took the punishment. Amen? Beautiful God, we are grateful that we don't have to hide even when we know that we have sinned. Lord, we are grateful that you came to deliver us not just from the religious practices we tend to have, but you came to deliver us from this illusion that we can escape from you. Lord, I'm grateful that in Jesus Christ we have been forgiven and accepted. I'm grateful, Lord, that in Jesus Christ we get to worship you. I'm grateful, Lord, that in Jesus Christ we encounter the better and new temple. And I'm grateful, Lord, that in Jesus... Not only we have a meeting place, a meeting person, but we have the way into transformation.
Please, Lord, help us see how the anger and compassion of, G- of how your anger and compassion was displayed at the cross. And use that to transform our hearts to become the people that we ought to become. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches. We close our service today by focusing on who Jesus is. Please stand.
All right, before finishing our service, just quick, two quick invitations. Number one, you have been hearing me saying throughout the month that we are inviting you to join us in the mission of God and become people who serve. So two weeks ago, we talked about neighborhood Bible clubs, right? Um, I've been inviting you to all kinds of stuff, basically. Today, I will have one more invitation. But I want to give you some numbers just for you guys to see, uh, capture this. Every Sunday, we need about five, there are about 500 serving opportunities to work with kids and students. 500 every Sunday. Every Sunday, we need people standing by the doors as greeters, people in the welcoming desk, people in the, in the uh, gathering ground, because we all know that holy, uh, that, that coffee is part, of, is part of our holy, holy experience. And I hope you know that to put these services together requires people in the back and people in the front and people moving the cameras and doing all these things. As a church, we have a place for you. So if you are not serving, I want to invite you to pray and consider it because we do need you. Now, if you don't serve, somebody else will, but you're going to miss the blessing because your gifts are not your gifts. They belong to, the God, belong to God and his church. Amen? That was the first announcement. So as you exit the building, you know, the, the welcoming center, QR code, you can use all that. Now, the second one is actually very important. So, and I'm asking you to pray for this as well because, um, you know, I don't know if you probably noticed, but uh, the church continues to grow. Some services are growing faster than others, but the church is growing. So we are now in the process of studying to think about what our fall is going to look like, right? So we need your input because we want to make informed decisions. So we want to hear the congregation so we can make an informed decisions. So we're thinking about what that looks like in the fall. Maybe we go back to something similar to what we had pre-COVID. Uh, so that's what we're working out. But there's a couple of things that, 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 that are important to me, so hear from my heart. I really want you to have a, a worship space where you get to worship in the, in the worship language that you enjoy, one. Two, I would really love to see our entire church be kind of a two-service church. This is what I mean. In which you come into a worship space one hour, and then you join an AC or serve in another hour. I think that Sunday is unique. We only do this once a week. So might as well make it the best experience we can. Amen? So with that in mind then, when you exit the building, you're going to find a printed survey. It has 100 questions. Just kidding. Just kidding. I think it has seven or eight questions. Take the time. Fill that. Turn it in. And if you are more digital, use the QR code. You could also find it there. Once again, the spirit behind all of this as the leaders of the church is to make informed decisions. We want you to have the worship experience you need and want, and we want you to have an opportunity to join an AC and serve. Amen? Let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us at the cross. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all the nations. And the church says, thanks for coming, church. We love you. Have a blessed day. You are sent.